Take your scriptures, the holy scriptures of God, and open them to Romans 5. And let's look at that 11th verse in this second assembly before we come to the table, the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ, and remember his death till he comes for us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Father in heaven, magnify thyself and glorify thy Son in the minutes that we have together around this verse, that you have made atonement with us, for us, through and by the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Hear us as we call upon Thee in His name. Amen. Amen. Romans 5, while dealing with a few different phases of salvation, remember we believe in five phases, eternal, legal, vital, practical, and final. Our salvation began in eternity with election. It ends up in the future in glorification. But the Bible also teaches us facets of salvation, like the different faces on a diamond, the facets of a diamond. We look at salvation, and not only do we see it progressively occurring from eternity to eternity, but we also see in the Bible that God chose a number of different words to describe it in different ways. Some of those words are used economically, like redemption is an economic term. Propitiation is a relationship term. Reconciliation is a relational term. And the Bible uses these different terms. A ransom is a different concept for us to see different aspects of salvation. And in Romans 5, 1 through 11, we have phases shown, but we have facets of salvation opened up as well. And we have a new facet coming up in verse 11. And it's a word that is only used... In Romans 5.11 in the New Testament. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word atonement is used. Now in the Old Testament it's used many, many times. And for a Jew that was sitting in the audience at Rome, with Paul writing this epistle to them, they would have grasped more perfectly and more emphatically than we do, just how much this verse means. Because they had spent their lives having an annual Day of Atonement. It's called in today's Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. One day out of the year, the most important holy day of the Jewish calendar then. I don't care one bit about Yom Kippur today. The Lord Jesus Christ put an end to the Day of Atonement once and for all, 1980 years ago. But here we have the word atonement, and we want to rejoice in it because we're told to. Look at the verse. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only so, what has gone down in this chapter has been wonderful, and this isn't even the first time we've had the words And not only so, 
We had them back in verse 3. And here we have them again in verse 11. The apostle is laying out phases and facets of salvation. And if at any point you think, well, that's about all that can be said, then he says, and not only so, or he says much more, and he adds to it. And he's adding to it here. The verses that we covered in our first assembly today, verses 9 and 10, that describe the life of Jesus Christ to guarantee our future salvation, those verses I understand in this context to be of the nature of assurance. It's to convince us and to reassure us that we shall be finally saved. Because if He was able to reconcile us from a state of enmity to one of approved and accepted sons by His death, how much more by His life will He be able to guarantee the final salvation of those reconciled children? That's in verses 9 and 10. Now that's looking to the future. It's more from a standpoint of assurance. If Jesus was able to justify me by His blood, if He was able to reconcile me by His death, His life is surely going to take care of me now and later, even in the great day of wrath. I can rest assuredly in that. Because if His death accomplished so much, His life can accomplish so much more. So much more. Yes. Okay, we come to verse 11. It says, and not only so. In verses 1 through 5, the present state of grace. Verses 6 through 8, the love of God magnified to us by the way, by Him dying through Jesus Christ for His enemies. Verses 9 and 10, our future assurance. Verse 11, some present joy. Let's not just be assured about the future. Let's be thankful and rejoicing right now because an atonement has been completed. And it's only our ignorance of Luke's, of, of Leviticus 16 and the Jewish Day of Atonement that we don't appreciate Romans 5.11. Therefore, I sent you a little diagram last night. Did you see it? Uh-oh. That's okay. Uh, did you see it? This morning. Oh, I, I didn't print it. I'm too much of a cheapskate because colored copies are expensive. And I made a choice that I would email it to you last night instead of handing it out today because to have that in front of your eyes, though I said it was for your children, it was for your pastor, and it was for you adults and parents, it helps to see a picture and a diagram of the tabernacle of Moses and its different compartments and its furniture and to see the different animals that were brought, and then to read through the proceedings that are described in Leviticus 16. Therefore, since some of you haven't seen it, and since I didn't bring it, and so we're both at fault, I'll have to do it verbally. You'll suffer, and I'll grieve. But let's think about this verse a little bit in light of that. Now, I brought a few, but uh, not nearly enough, and so I'm not going to cause any disturbance in the assembly by passing out a few, but this is what I sent to you yesterday at about 6 p.m. for you to look at and be reminded of the Day of Atonement. It is the most important day in the Jewish calendar. It was Moses' Jewish calendar. The, the Jewish calendar today, who gives a rip about any aspect of it? It has nothing to do with the Bible or God. They're just maintaining tradition of the Jewish elders, not of the Old Testament, not of Moses, not of God. 
They're Jesus Christ haters of the first order. When I say the Jewish calendar, I mean Moses' calendar. The calendar that was given by God to Moses in the first five books of the Bible that described the feasts and the other holy days of the Jews that they were to celebrate or to observe in their religious worship. And the Day of Atonement was the biggest one of the year, and it was only one day long. The others were seven-day feasts. The Feast of Passover is called a feast. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. The, fir- the Feast of first fruits. they're called feasts. This is not called a feast because it wasn't a feast. You were not feasting, you were afflicting yourself in humiliation and repentance when you came before the Lord on this day. But it was the tenth day of the seventh month, and we'll have more to say about it, but I want to introduce it to you, and I'm going to describe it to you, because of this eleventh verse. This is the only time in the New Testament we have this word, atonement. And it's something that should cause us present joy. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, every one of you fathers, as you have children come and sit around your table, and those of you that are older already know this, do you like your children coming happy? Do you like them being thankful? Do you like them getting along with each other? But most of all, do you like them being happy? A happy family is a wonderful thing when everyone is happy together and the Lord wants us happy because He has given us, our Father in Heaven has given us an atonement through Jesus Christ the Lord. But we don't even know what the word means. We don't know its significance in the Bible unless we know about the Day of Atonement. You know what the word means. It means at one meant. Can you see that in its letters? A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. At one meant the act of putting two parties that are adversaries at one. That is what the definition of the word is. It doesn't care if you, it doesn't matter if you look up the 24 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's going to tell you to put at one, and it's going to italicize at one because it's telling you we stole these little words, these little root words out of the word atonement. Atonement is the work, the act that puts at one two adversarial parties, two people that were striving and that were at enmity with each other. Jesus Christ did that for us. God has made a final atonement through Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and it is something that we can now rejoice in. Verses 9 and 10 were future. Look at what they say. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. Verse 9 and the second half. Verse 10, we shall be saved by His life. That is assurance about the future. But there's a past event as Paul runs from phase to phase and from facet to facet. He jumps back in verse 11 to a past event of Jesus dying on the cross and being the atonement for us, putting us at one with God again. Now he has said in verses 9 and 10, if we're already reconciled, then his life to guarantee our full and final salvation should be easy. Much more than justifying us from a state of enmity by his death. But then he jumps back to it, to that reconciliation, and calls it atonement. And we want to think about being put at one with God. Adam knew what it was like in one second not to be at one with God. Have you ever known you were not at one with God? Adam knew in one second when they ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately knew they were naked. They were 
What's that new word in the human experience that starts with A? They were ashamed. And they went and hid themselves in the tree of the, gar- the trees of the garden. They tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves because they were not at one with God. God came down in the cool of the evening to talk with Adam as he typically did. And Adam was hiding. What had happened? Adam! Where art thou? As if the Lord needed help in finding him. You don't play hide and go seek with the Lord. You can hide, but he doesn't even have to seek. Because he already knows where you are. David's pretty plain about that in the first few verses of Psalm 139 when he says, It doesn't matter whether I'm up in heaven or I'm in the lowest hell or I'm on the farthest sea. Thou art there. And you see everything about me, including the words that are in my tongue before they come out that would ever land in a person's ear. You see and know all that about me. Adam and Eve were not at one with God anymore. God had to kill an animal, take its skins, and make them clothes to cover their nakedness in order to make them at one enough for Him to allow them to continue living on the earth. They still weren't at one with Him because it took the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. And as early as Genesis chapter 3, it tells us about the seed of the woman coming to put at one again by destroying the serpent's works that had brought the condemnation of death upon our first two parents. And not only so, these are precious words. Not only do we have future assurance, we should have present joy. Something has been done and is complete, and we want to grasp it in its fullness so that we are thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Paul's laid the foundation of God's love for us. He's promised our future deliverance, and now he wants us to rejoice at being put at one again. And we should rejoice over the fact. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now, now received the atonement. There isn't an atonement to take place, although there is a deliverance to take place in the future when our names will be found in the book of life on a very formal day of judgment. That is all future. But there is something now that is settled that we should rejoice in now. And verse 11 is just a different angle and a different aspect of salvation as Paul just wants to fill up Romans chapter 5 with wonderful things about how we're saved by Jesus Christ and the state of grace and blessings that we have because of him. 12 through 19 are going to be about the two Adams, the doctrine of representation. Verses 20 and 21 are about why the law came. Why did God even bring a law? And there's a reason for it, and it's to glorify his grace Because the law shows our sinfulness. But here in this 11th verse, we want the day of atonement because it is something that God did for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a settled fact. It is now in place, even then, in 60 A.D., approximately, when Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, it was in place. And we should rejoice. And this is called a feast in the Bible. It's not called a fast in the Bible. The day of atonement of the Jews was the fast. Acts 27 and verse 9, Luke, as he's writing the Acts of the Apostles, mentions about Paul 
being out on a sea late in the fall, and he says the past, the fast being past, they shouldn't have been out at sea. And it cost them. <laughs> it cost them dearly. Because that was not an ordinary time for sailing. Because the Day of Atonement on a Jewish calendar is the tenth day of the seventh month, about our October 1st. And that is the day that a Jewish mind would pick up on in one second. By whom we have now received the atonement. Not repeat atonements. Not further days of atonement. But God has used His Son, Jesus Christ, as the sin offering for us. So there needs to be no further atonement. And they would grasp it, and we need to grasp it by considering that holy day of the Jewish calendar. Atonement, remember, just means to put it one again. Never worry about that word. I know you don't use it in sentences on a regular basis, but if you just look at it, and you see the first two letters are a root, at, then the next three letters are a root, one. At one meant the work or the action of putting two adversarial parties at one, unified, at peace, on friendly terms. Enmity and strife taken away is what the word means. But, beyond the English word, we have the Bible. And it describes for us the Day of Atonement. And the whole 16th chapter of Leviticus, which I recommended that you start reading when I sent out my Friday update on Tuesday night, that you... I know. Thank you for not emailing me about it. Several days ago, I suggest that you read Leviticus 16 because it's so good to get some of the details of that day. And it's a unique chapter in that it's limited to the Day of Atonement. It's good to get them into our minds to fully appreciate them. Paul has been spending a great deal of time since chapter 2 and verse 1 about the Jews. It appeared that he may have ended that at 425. But here in 5.11, by mentioning atonement, he again went after something that was more Jewish than Gentiles. The Gentiles would have only known about it to the degree that they were familiar with the Old Testament. The Jews would have been very familiar with it because every tenth day of the seventh month of the year, they would have been observing it. And what did it mean to observe it for them? The nation out out of their treasury had to bring forth two goats, one ram, seven lambs, and some meal and drink offerings. You say, where's all that stuff? It's in the other passages. Right. you just got to read the whole Bible if you want to understand any of the Bible. Right. It's just what the Lord wants us to do. But the main thing they brought were two goats and a ram. One goat for a sin offering, one goat for a scapegoat, and the ram for a burnt offering. And they were to afflict themselves the whole day. The Bible teaches this from 6 p.m. the night before until 6 p.m. of that 10th day. It says very specifically, from the evening of the 9th to the evening of the 10th, you are to afflict yourselves. No work, no pleasure, no eating. It's called the fast, Acts 27.9. And that is a very unusual day in the Jewish calendar, Moses' calendar. Because the the other holy days are called feasts. What are you doing on a feast day? You're eating. And you're off work because it's a holy Sabbath that would start and end those seven-day feasts. But they were called feasts for a reason because they involved big meals and eating. But not this day. 
This is a day when they were going to have atonement made for their sins. They were going to be put at one again. Have we read enough in the Scriptures today, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, for us to realize and remember that everything in the Old Testament was set up to be a pattern and an example of what was coming, a shadow of what was coming. When you see a person's shadow on the ground, you just get a vague idea of what they look like because the details of their features cannot be revealed by a shadow. And the shadow of the Old Testament is a pattern, and we can see the outline, and we can see the example, but we don't see the details. We are blessed of all people. We have the New Testament. You can read Hebrews 9, where it lists some details of this feast day and looks back and tells us what they're referring to. Every, and we, we want to think about some of those aspects of the Day of Atonement so that we can appreciate it. All of, Luke, all of Leviticus 16 is about the Day of Atonement, and there are several other passages, but that is the main one. The Jews would have grasped this. So as, as I leave this verse, I want you to remember these things about it. And not only so. Not only do we have a present state of grace where God is with us so that we can glory in our tribulations, verses 1 through 5. Not only has God shown His love to us and commended it by dying for His enemies, verses 6 through 8. Not only do we have assurance of our final salvation by Jesus Christ's life for us, but we have something to joy in now. And that's why the words, and not only so, not only do we have those things, but we have a finished atonement. And we should be joying in that atonement because it is something that is now in place. We will joy in that day, not so much for the atonement, but for the life of the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to stand between us and a holy God and say, I died for Him, and He will confess our name before His Father and before the angels. Revelation 3.5 In that day, we'll be thankful for His life as our priest, mediator, and our advocate with the Father. But reading this right now, we want to joy in a finished atonement. Because it says now, The Day of Atonement, seventh day, the tenth day of the seventh month, excuse me, tenth day of the seventh month, from evening until evening, one day, not a week. It was a Sabbath, you couldn't work, but you were to afflict yourselves. Where in the Bible does it tell us that we need to afflict ourselves if we want to get closer to God? Is there a place in the New Testament that tells us to do that? Is it James? James chapter 4 tells us that we should mourn and weep and give up our laughter in order to be serious about the confession of our sins, in order to draw nigh to God. And if we draw nigh to Him, He will draw nigh to us. And this is the way that Israel was to draw nigh to Him once a year. One man operated, the high priest. And that high priest was not decked out in his beautiful outfit of gold and colors that he ordinarily wore. He was stripped down to the simple, plain, white linen clothing of a Levite so that in humility and as an equal to all of his brethren, he came into that tabernacle in order to offer up these sacrifices. 
because he needed a sin offering as much as anyone in the assembly. And so he came in humility. The whole nation is fasting for a 24-hour period. They are afflicting themselves. They are realizing that before God they are guilty and that sins need to be atoned for for them to have peace with God. The high priest brings his bullock and his ram out of their funds. A bullock for his sin offering and a ram for his burnt offering. The difference between offerings, very briefly, a sin offering. All the offerings, when they involved an animal, and there was always blood, because the remission of sins requires blood, but there were different treatments of the animals. A sin offering, part of it was eaten by the priests, because they were the ones intermediating between God and men. But the offerer did not get anything from a sin offering. From a a sin offering would have parts cut away, used by the priests, the rest burned up, in this particular case, carried out of the camp and burned up at a distance. A burnt offering was where you gave something to God to show your total commitment to Him and your total devotion to Jehovah. A burnt offering was not to put away sin like a sin offering. It was to show your dedication to God. And so you would burn up the whole thing on the altar. The whole thing got burned up. A peace offering that you would bring was a free will offering where you just wanted to show God that you loved Him by spending extra money, by burning up some extra animals on the altar. The priests and others that were there and you could partake. It did kill one of your animals that you could no longer use for your livelihood. But that was a peace offering. The burnt offering was different and always followed the sin offering because you had to get rid of your sins first before you could commit yourself to God. But you burned up the whole thing. There's an ox. An ox can produce some of this. The Bible says where there is no ox, the crib is bare. But where you've got an ox or an income producing asset, you can make some money. And so to bring an ox and offer it as a burnt offering, you are giving up something of value to the Lord And the purpose of that was, I am wholly the Lord's, wholly committed to Him. But it always came after a sin offering for whatever occasion you were there for and for whatever sins that you offered first. Just a little bit on that. And that's why there's these different animals. The priests brought a bullock for their sin offering and they brought a ram for their burnt offering. The congregation of Israel brought two goats One for a sin offering and one for a scapegoat and a ram for their burnt offering and seven lambs and some meal, meaning some flour products as well for their burnt offerings. And that was to dedicate themselves to the Lord after their sins were covered. If you read through the chapter, Aaron would start out in his simple white garments and make atonement for the people, make atonement for the tabernacle, make atonement for the altar because of the uncleanness of the nation. We are so unclean, everything is corrupted by our presence even around it. And so he would have to take the blood and sprinkle it and touch it and put it on the horns of the altar because the altar needed to be sanctified to be acceptable in the sight of God because that was owned by the Israelites and they are unclean in my sight. So every year, everything had to be sanctified. The tabernacle, the altar, the priest, the high priest, 
His whole house, the whole tribe of Levi, all the priests, and then all the people. The priest in his white linen brings the bullock in, kills the bullock, takes the bullock's blood, puts it on the horns of the altar, sanctifies the altar, takes it inside the Holy of Holies, and puts it on the mercy seat before God. And God said, there I'll visit you. Along with that blood, he brought in some incense that he had beaten very small, very careful for this occasion. And what burned that incense? Coals taken from the brazen altar where the sin offering was made. And so he comes in, and before the mercy seat, the only time in a year, and there was no one else allowed near him, he was in there alone and not without blood. He went through that second veil into a little compartment 15 feet by 15 feet square, and stood there and sprinkled that blood in the mercy seat, which is between the two cherubim, which is where God had them understand, that is where my presence will be. That is a pattern, a shadow, an example of my presence. Because in heaven, does the Bible tell us that there are some very unique creatures around the throne of God with wings? Do the four beasts have a few wings? Yes, they do. And so there's a picture on earth that's sort of like that for us to understand that is the dwelling place of the Most High God. And that priest could only go in there once a year behind that veil to actually be in God's presence, and he would sprinkle some blood of the bullock first. He did not have the blood of a goat with him because he had to make atonement for himself. He had to make atonement for all the other priests. He had to make atonement for the whole family and for the whole tribe of Levi. Back out he goes. And he has incense in there. It's going up as he's fulfilling the office of a priest. He's taken blood from a dead animal. And he's also taken incense that goes up, which is the work of intercession and prayers between God and men. He's doing both. He goes back out. There's two goats. Let's flip a coin on these goats. One side of the coin is going to say sin offering. The Lord's, the other side is going to say scapegoat. In the revised version of 1881, put out by Westcott and Hort in the Church of England, it calls it a zazel. And they make it up to be a caricature of the devil or a representation of the devil. There's nothing like that taught to us in the Bible. All it is is it's going to be a scapegoat, and we trust Leviticus 16 in a King James Bible that it's a scapegoat, and we know exactly what that means. The burden and the blame is put on him. There's two pictures. It's a two-sided coin. There's a, there were lots cast, but there's one aspect. The first goat becomes a sin offering. He's killed to make atonement for the people of Israel, not the priests, but for the people of Israel. And the other one, Aaron puts his hands on its head and confesses all the sins of the whole nation. And then a fit man, they had fit men even back then, could run that thing as far away from Israel as possible and lose it in the wilderness. And how old was it? What is the three-letter word that describes those two goats? Old or kid? Kid. It was a kid goat. A goat kid. A young goat. Taken far away by a fit man because that is a picture of our sins being lost in the wilderness. Our sins being as far as the east is from the west. Our sins being behind his back. Our sins being in the depths of the deepest sea. 
our sins being remembered no more. And it was a beautiful picture. One goat died. The other goat that had the sins on it was taken far away and lost. So the priest is back out in his white linen. He kills the goat, the sin offering goat. And he takes its blood, puts it on the altar, takes it in, sprinkles it in the mercy seat because he's sanctifying it for all the people of Israel. And he's making an atonement. I love the words of Leviticus 16. Were there facets of salvation Leviticus 16? Cleanse, hallow, reconcile, and atone in one chapter of the Old Testament. You say, I've never appreciated the book of Leviticus. Let's start right now. Chapter 16. The different facets of salvation that are in that one chapter. The priest comes back out. He's washed before he put that outfit on. He washes again and takes it off and puts on his other robes and they offer up the burnt offerings. A fit man has taken the one goat out in the wilderness and it's lost. And he offers up the the ram, a ram for the priests, a ram for the people of Israel and their seven lambs and their meat offerings and their meal offerings. And so atonement is made in that way every year This took place for the Jews for 1,500 years when they were observing it. And in Romans 5.11, the only occurrence in the New Testament, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. There's no more scapegoat. There's no more sin offering. There's no more rams, bullocks, goats, lambs. Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all that was shadowed, exampled, and patterned in that one great day in Israel's history. And so in one little verse, with one use of the word atonement, the Apostle Paul wants us to grasp the fantastic glory of what Jesus did for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This was the number one day in the Jewish calendar. Who cares if they were delivered out of Egypt with a seven-day Passover in comparison to being delivered from their sins and being put at one with God? This day was serious. They afflicted themselves. They fasted. The whole congregation was very involved in this thing being done, very unique from other days of the year, different attire, different practice. The only time they got inside the Holy of Holies the smallest, most intimate compartment where God dwelt. And then running the scapegoat off. And the man coming back and having to bathe himself. And then they would grab the bodies of the bullock and grab the bodies of the goat that were the two sin offerings and haul them out of camp and burn them up. Every bit of them, the skin, the innards, and every bit of those animals outside the camp. Nobody partook of them. They were the sin offerings to atone for the nation. Hebrews 9 is so wonderful. When you've read Leviticus 16 and you understand Hebrews 9, it gives you an understanding of Leviticus and much that went on in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read the first ten verses. I'll start at verse 11. But Christ, here is our atonement. And this is why we should joy now. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, it doesn't have anything to do with Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple, or Zerubbabel's temple, which was then standing, 
neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Do you fully understand that 12th verse of Hebrews 9? The high priest of Israel, Aaron, the first one, could only go into the Holy of Holies or the presence of God once each year. But he had to go in there with the blood of a bullock. And he had to offer that blood for his own sins. We have a high priest that went in there one time for all time with his own blood for us. Unbelievable. His own blood. The priests had to produce that bullock and that ram. The nation had to produce the goats and the ram. God produced His Son Himself for us. Unbelievable. This is what we're supposed to be rejoicing in. So it tells us in that 12th verse, neither by the blood of goats and calves, so that's changed, that was only a shadow of better blood, but by His own blood, He entered in once, not once a year, but once for all time, into the holy place, not on earth, that is, not of a tabernacle made down here, but into heaven itself, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Not for a year, but it's called, what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. Eternal atonement. Eternal propitiation. He's obtained for us. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, another ceremony, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, there we go, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Paul's appeal here is you Hebrew Christians that have been saved from the the dead works of Moses' system, if if those old dead works could satisfy your conscience for a year, and they couldn't really put away sin, but if they put you at one with God in a sort of way for a year until you did it next time, how much more should the blood of Christ purge your conscience from those dead works to serve the living God? Those were just a pattern. Those ordinances that were ordained were just a shadow of the real thing. Now that the real thing has happened, you should be happy, conscience cleared, and wanting to serve the living God. Verse 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Even the patterns that were on earth had blood to purify them, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, they're just, it's just a pattern, just a shadow, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Amen. This morning's sermon. Verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often. As the high priest entereth into the holy place every year, every day of atonement, with blood of others, bullock and sin offering goat. Verse 26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is the atonement fulfillment 
of the Lord Jesus Christ that we should rejoice in now. As we come to the Lord's table, we are in a state of grace that He's purchased for us. We can glory in our tribulations. We can rejoice in hope of glory. And all the blessings of Romans 5, 1 through 5, we know He loves us because He sent His Son to die for us when we were enemies. Verses 6 through 8. He is going to save us by His everlasting life spent interceding for us as our advocate and priest. Verse 11. We should be rejoicing now. This is Romans 5. We should be rejoicing now because we have received the atonement. Jesus died and fulfilled all of that, putting us at one with God again. Turn over to chapter 13. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't put our sins on the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ took our sins himself and put them away. Don't you ever read anything from those other versions about Azazel and a corruption of the scapegoat. It's a scapegoat. All it was was to show that our sins are carried far away and forgotten. Lost. What have they done to our Bibles? Thank you, Lord, for a King James Bible. Scapegoat. We know exactly what that is. They made me a scapegoat. What does that mean? You get the blame. And the blame was carried far away. It was a dual picture. Death, carried far away, gone, lost, in the wilderness. Where was that bullock? The bullock was killed and his blood taken into the mercy seat for the priest and the tabernacle. The first goat that was chosen by Lot was killed as a sin offering. Its blood was taken into the mercy seat for all the people. Now we have two dead bodies out there, a bullock and a goat. They were carried far outside the camp and burned up every single bit of them. Unusual. Paul appeals to it. I just want you to see, to a Jewish mind, three quarters of your Bible is the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament a little bit, there's a bunch of the New Testament that's going to be somewhat obscure to you. And since we've just been in Leviticus 16 with me describing it to you, Look at Hebrews 13, verse 10. We have an altar. We Christian Jews, we Hebrew Christians, we baptized Hebrews, have an altar where they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Wow, this is powerful. Who serves the tabernacle? The Levites, the priests of Moses' religion. They have no right at our altar. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Jesus was was not offered in the temple at Jerusalem. Jesus was offered on a hill called Calvary or Golgotha outside the city. And Paul's appeal is, you Hebrew Christians, don't go back to rejoin yourself to Moses' religion and the Levites. We have a better altar, a better priest, a better sacrifice, and it was done outside the camp. 
let us go outside the camp of Israel and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have that camp to go outside of. But as Brother Gerald prayed this morning, we want to go outside the camp of carnal Christianity, worldliness, and everything that raises itself up in enmity against the God of heaven. And we want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. All taken from Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. May the Lord bless us now as we come to His table and celebrate at a feast, 1 Corinthians 5, 8, the atonement Jesus Christ made for us.